In the summer of 1854, a second lieutenant, John L. Gratton, led a detachment of infantry into a combined Brule and Oglala Lakota village just east of Fort Laramie. It seems a visiting Minikonju had killed a stray cow belonging to a passing wagon train, and its owner demanded justice. Okay, fine. Chief Conquering Bear offered up a horse as way of compensation, but no dice. The cow's owner wanted money, and the U.S. Army wanted an arrest, something that old Conquering Bear could not do. Not only did he have no authority over a member of another band, but it would have also been rude. I mean, the Minikonju in question, after all, was Conquering Bear's guest. The entire affair was to be handled by the Indian agent per the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1851, and he was due to arrive in just a few days. Despite the short wait, the army decided to act. That's where 2nd Lieutenant Gratton comes into play. He marched his 30 men, including a very drunk and rude French interpreter, into a camp containing an estimated 1,200 warriors and tried to arrest the alleged thief. You can probably guess how this turned out. The resulting battle, known as the Grattan Massacre, saw the lieutenant and nearly a dozen of his troops almost immediately cut down. Warriors led by an up-and-coming Oglala in his early 30s named Red Cloud overtook and finished off the remaining soldiers as they attempted to retreat. The whole bloody mess was over in a matter of minutes. A year later, several hundred soldiers under the command of Brigadier General William S. Harney would attack a Brule Lakota camp near present-day Llewellyn, Nebraska. This Battle of the Blue Water, a.k.a. the Harney Massacre, saw over 80 Lakota killed, half of which were women and children. An additional 70 prisoners were taken, almost all of whom were women and children. Some historians point to this event and the Grattan Massacre as being the impetus to the violence that would dominate the Great Plains over the next 25 years. Toss in a couple of broken treaties along with a few more massacres and you better believe things were about to get real bloody. As a result, the United States military would soon be facing a determined foe unlike any previously encountered. So paint that favorite war pony and saddle up. We're going to the Powder River on this one. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Hey, real quick, this is part five and the final installment in the Jim Bridger series. Link in the show notes for the previous four. By the spring of 1862, the Army once again came calling on old Jim Bridger. This time to guide a Colonel William Collins and his men as they attempted to protect the telegraph and relay stations from hostile Lakota. And by all accounts, Bridger got along well with the rank-and-file soldiers he worked with, often teasing or just plain taking the piss out of the younger troops. A store sutler at Fort Laramie during this time remembered that Jim was always very open to questions and that he answered all inquiries as honestly as he could that he was both a great listener and a conversationalist. However, it was noted that Jim had very little patience for willful ignorance. Anytime somebody would say something that he felt was out of malice or just downright meanness, Bridger would simply curl up his mouth in a sneer and walk away. Per biographer Jerry Insler, Jim didn't like to sacrifice his feelings, intelligence, or personal pleasure when, quote, it was such an easy matter to walk away from a damn fool talking. End of quote and a lesson I think would serve us all well to follow. Don't waste your breath or your time arguing with a damn hard-headed fool. Just do like Bridger and walk away. Colonel Collins' teenage son, Casper Collins, whom Casper, Wyoming is named after, traveled often with his father and was amazed at how many languages Bridger could speak. 
Per young Casper, Jim could talk a little French, Spanish, Shoshone, Crow, Bannock, Salish, Nez Perce, and Ute. And of course, he was fluent in the universal sign language of the Plains. Now let me preface the rest of this episode with a disclaimer. The next four or five years of Bridger's life will be interwoven with the Lakota and their struggles. This puts me in a bit of a pickle, as I am planning on doing an entire series on the Lakota later this year. From the Grand Massacre to the Powder River Campaign, the Minnesota Uprising, Red Clouds War, the Great Sioux War of 1876, Little Bighorn, Sitting Bull up in Canada, all the way to Wounded Knee. I want to cover it all and in detail. Due to this and me not wanting to bore you with repetition, some of the events discussed on this episode will be summarized without going too far in depth. I'll explain what's happening and what Jim Bridger's various roles were, but if you're looking for a really deep dive into the Lakota or the so-called Indian Wars in general, just know that that is coming soon. Now, on the last episode, we left off discussing gold. What Black Elk once described as that yellow metal that drives the whites crazy. Once the boomtowns of Bannock and Virginia City sprung up, prospectors began flocking to Montana in droves via a new road dubbed the Bozeman Trail. Now, this route, blazed by John Bozeman, broke off from the Oregon Trail near present-day Douglas, Wyoming, before veering north by northwest. It crossed the Powder River, skirted the east side of the Bighorn Mountains, and then turned sharply to the northwest, crossing the Yellowstone River and Bozeman Pass before finally reaching Virginia City. For those of you keeping track, this road passes rot smack dab through Lakota and northern Cheyenne Territory. And by the time 1864 came around, John Bozeman was looking to lead a major migration across this extremely dangerous trail. A mass influx of travelers that would stir these tribes into a fury and 100% for sure spark a war. Luckily, Jim Bridger figured out a solution, what would come to be known as Bridger's Trail. This would take travelers slightly more due west, crossing on the western side of the Bighorn Mountains, and instead of trespassing on Cheyenne and Lakota land, Prospectors would be passing through the territory of the much more accommodating Crow and Shoshone. Bridger's Trail would then link back up with the Bozeman in present-day Montana on the Yellowstone, near where the town of Laurel now stands, and from there on it was smooth sailing. Okay, cool. Sounds like a great plan. Hell, even the Sioux knew about Bridger's Road, or the Blanket Road as they called it after Jim's old nickname. When the Lakota caught miners on the Bozeman Trail, they told them to turn their asses around and take the Blanket Road. Or at least they did until they got tired of talking. That summer of 1864, Bridger himself would guide a train of some 400 wagons across his trail, only to be absolutely amazed at the sight of the boomtown of Virginia City, a place that was merely an untouched wilderness the last time he was in the area. Jim returned to Fort Laramie in August and was badly injured after being thrown from a horse. Keep in mind, he's now 60 years old. Fort Laramie records show that he was transported to the Fort Hospital, but this incident wouldn't slow Bridger down, at least not yet. By mid-September, he's guiding yet another wagon train up the Blanket Road, and contrary to what you may read, his trail did prove to be more popular than the Bozeman. All total, in 1864, it's estimated that 2,500 men and scores of women and children utilized the Bridger Trail as opposed to just 1,500 via the Bozeman. Sure, the Bozeman Trail offered more water and grazing for the animals, but at what cost? Still, people are hard-headed, and despite the dangers, and despite the Lakota now beginning to kill travelers, the gold miners persisted, as did the military, hoping to offer up protection. All of this just causing unnecessary strife. And then further south in Colorado, Shivington and his men executed the Sand Creek Massacre. 
This, coupled with the aggravation of the Bozeman Trail and other recent instigations, would ignite a full-on war as the Cheyenne, Arapaho, and Lakota vowed to defeat the whites and drive them from their territories altogether. Wagon trains raided, relay stations burned, men and women killed, children taken. The small town of Julesburg, Colorado was sacked, 14 soldiers from Fort Rankin were killed, and thus the Powder River Campaign of 1865 began. Jim had done his level best to stop things from getting out of control by introducing the Bridger Trail, but it was no use. The war was on, and the Army would now need a reliable guide. As such, Bridger would report to Fort Laramie in April of 1865, where, to his absolute disgust, he was greeted with the sight of a Cheyenne warrior's rotting corpse hanging from a noose. The dead man, a feller named Big Crow, had been captured for his alleged role in the attack on Julesburg. Then, when some of his fellow tribesmen killed a soldier a mile or so west of Fort Laramie, General Patrick Connor ordered that Big Crow be taken to the location of the soldier's death and strung up. The troops did as ordered, quickly erecting the gallows and placing Big Crow on the bed of a wagon, noose around his neck. They then drove the wagon out from underneath the Cheyenne, but he was quick enough to use the dang rope to shimmy up the cross piece of the scaffolding. Eventually, a soldier had to climb up and wrestle with Big Crow until they both fell, and of course, the condemned man finally succumbed to the noose. And they just left him there hanging as a warning. A few weeks later, Bridger would guide a Colonel Thomas Moonlight and his 500-horse soldiers toward the Bighorn, hoping to locate a large camp of Cheyenne. They found sign, but ultimately returned to Fort Laramie without a fight. Upon arrival, Jim noticed two more natives, this time Lakotas, who had been placed under arrest with orders to hang and be left hanging, just like Big Crow. Bridger warned against this, saying that such a public and disrespectful display will only cause more deaths, but his word fell on deaf ears. And these new prisoners soon joined Big Crow, rotten and swaying right out there in the open. By late July, the military was ready for a big push. General Connor split his force of 2,500-plus men into three groups, with Bridger, now chief of scouts, personally guiding for Connor and his 800 soldiers and 185 wagons as they departed Fort Laramie. Now, the Powder River campaign was interesting in that the military utilized a large force of volunteers. The largest group of volunteers, in fact, ever deployed against the hostiles, at least up to that point. In addition to General Connor's force, you also had 1,400 Missourians under Colonel Nelson Cole, 600 Kansians under Lieutenant Colonel Samuel Walker, and Captain Frank North and his Pawnee scouts. Remember, cut me a little slack here as this is not meant to be a full and thorough examination of the Powder River campaign. Just a look at Bridger's role as Chief of Scouts. Each morning, the now 61-year-old Jim would rise early, have a cup of strong black coffee, and a bit of jerky and confer with the general. He would then ride out far ahead of the column, alone, as his fellow scouts rode the flanks. At night, Jim would return well after dark, have him another bite to eat, and then turn in. Rinse and repeat. Now, I don't want to diminish the skill or grit of the U.S. fighting man of that day and age, but for the most part, many of these young troopers and volunteers would have died out there on the prairie if left to their own devices. They'd get lost, drink some bad water, or not notice hostile sign and be cut down. This is not a reflection on them so much as their lack of experience out west. Bridger, however, an old man, was surviving such an environment alone on a daily basis with the same ease that you and I toss a load of laundry in the washer. Per one unnamed soldier serving in General Connor's command, quote, I knew scores of hunters, scouts, and trappers of great and less repute. 
none of whom were worthy to sit at the same table with Jim Bridger. To me, the simplicity, the kindliness, and absolute trustfulness of his character marked him as a man above the common. End quote. And yet another remembered, quote, Bridger seemed to know every foot of the way in the country we went through. He was a very shrewd man and rather rough. He understood the way of the Indians very well and seemed to be able to make friends even with the warriors. End quote. We're also left with the following tantalizing detail as to Bridger's firearm of choice during the campaign with a soldier describing it as a, quote, extraordinary double-barreled rifle with which he could plug the center at 500 yards offhand. He was one of the most unassuming men I ever saw, but when he said anything, he meant it, end quote. Now, I am no firearms expert, but I did consult with my buddy Garrett Levi from the 11 Bang Bang YouTube channel. This is just a guess, but Garrett thought possibly Jim could have been carrying a London-made Purdy express rifle most likely in 50 caliber. It may have even fired a 58 or even a 62 caliber, but slugs that heavy would drop pretty damn fast to be hitting center at 500 yards. Then again, Garrett points out that these side-by-side double-barreled express rifles were also proof to take extremely hot charges of powder, which I reckon would aid in reaching out and touching something at a great distance. These bad boys were expensive, however, and similar rifles could be made by local gunsmiths for a bit cheaper. If you're into older firearms, flintlocks, and muskets, and just history in general, do yourself a favor and subscribe to Garrett's channel on YouTube. 11 Bang Bang. 1 1 Bang Bang. Link in the show notes, and thank you, Garrett. Now, these young soldiers and volunteers Jim was guiding during the Powder River Expedition, they thought the world of him. Hell, he was already a damn legend by the time any of them were born. Jim's boss, however, General Patrick E. Connor, did not share the same fond sentiments. The Irish-born officer was a veteran of not only the Civil War, but the Mexican-American and the Seminole Wars. And he wasn't brand spanking new to the American West either. It was he and his men in 1863 who committed the lesser-known Bear River Massacre. This occurred not far from present-day Preston, Idaho, and saw hundreds of Shoshones slaughtered. Numbers vary, but possibly somewhere between 250 and nearly 500. And as usual, many of those killed were women and children. This may have partly been the reason why Connor disliked Bridger. He knew the old man was close with the Shoshone, and as such, he often suspected Jim as being treacherous. There was one incident when, as they were about to enter into a canyon, the general turned to Bridger, patted his holstered sidearm, and threatened, quote, Jim, if you lead me into an ambush, by God, you're the first who's going to die. Damn paper-collar soldier is what Bridger referred to Connor as. Got to assume that the general was the beneficiary of many of Jim's scowls. Another reason Connor may have not cared for the mountain man was because Bridger was often sympathetic with the plight of the natives. He believed that they were actual humans, and in many ways, Jim had more in common with the Native Americans, both in habits and beliefs, than the soldiers that he now guided. Connor couldn't understand that. Matter of fact, he had given his men the express order that they were absolutely not to take prisoners and were to kill any and all male Indians over the age of 12. Orders that he was forced to countermand once his boss found out and threatened to take his commission. Now, as far as their actual engagements with the hostiles, Bridger did locate a column of smoke that Captain Frank North and his Pawnees then determined was an Arapaho village. Most sources don't list Jim as being involved in the battle that followed, except for one, frontiersman and teamster Finn Burnett, who stated that Bridger led the column to the camp. 
Now, this fight, known as the Battle of Tongue River, saw the Arapaho put up a tough resistance, despite many of the warriors being away at the time raiding the Crow. As they tended to do, the men covered the women and children as they retreated before following suit. The Arapaho then regrouped and counterattacked, causing General Connor and his force to retreat. All in all, it is considered a U.S. victory, with the soldiers only losing one dead and six wounded, along with one dead Native American scout. The Arapaho lost somewhere between 30 to 60-something dead, and yes, of course, per usual, some of them were women and children. Now, the other two army units weren't doing nearly as well. Likely unbeknownst to Bridger, his son Felix was now serving nearby under Colonel Nelson Cole, and they were having one hell of a bad time of it, as were the men under Samuel Walker. Both officers suffered from incompetent scouts, and it was at least partly due to Bridger's expertise that Connor's mission wasn't also a total failure. And by failure, I mean the loss of life. In the eyes of the military, General Connor had still not performed up to snuff. Not only had he failed to punish the enemy sufficiently, but his original orders were inhumane and he lost around a thousand horses. When it was all said and done, despite striking a blow against the Arapaho, Connor was reassigned to a different district altogether and replaced by Brigadier General Frank Wheaton. Once back at Fort Laramie, Jim was reunited with his son Felix, and according to a witness, was very displeased to see his son, quote, in the ranks of a common soldier. Now, whether Bridger's mood was due to his son's actual rank, or simply the idea of him out there putting his neck on the line for the army is anybody's guess. And just to further drive home the type of guy the Jim was, as he returned from Laramie, he hitched a ride part of the way in the back of a mail wagon with two soldiers who had just mustered out. And for the trip, here he was, this living legend, riding in the back of this wagon with these two young men, probably over half his age, and Jim was simply just one of the boys. They piled up hay six inches deep and placed their blankets over it and made a trip out of it. Along the way, they stopped at a roadhouse inn and the owner recognized Bridger, immediately inviting him in for a meal in a room on the sleeve. Jim didn't budge, though, saying that he was traveling with these two soldier boys and he bunks where they bunk and he'll eat what they eat. And just like that, all three received room and board for free. And that's just the type of guy that Bridger was. He didn't put on no airs. He wasn't better than you or above you. Jim was just making his way in this world like all the rest of us. I don't know, I could be wrong, but I don't see General Connor traveling or acting in such a fashion. At Fort Kearney, Jim gave a very rare interview to a newspaper, the Kearney Semi-Weekly Herald, and said that he was of a mind to return to what he called his home in Fort Bridger and wake up his foes, meaning them damn Mormons. Guess he was still smarting over what they had done. He also pointed out that the military's method of moving men and supplies was quote-unquote simply absurd and that he could do much better with a group of seasoned frontiersmen. The paper wrote, quote, If they will let him select a party of men, he will follow the Indians week after week, faring as they do, and will eventually overtake and surprise their villages. End quote. Jim would return home to Westport, but not for long. There was a large council held at Fort Laramie in the summer of 1866, with 21 separate bands of Lakota, Arapaho, and Cheyenne coming in to discuss a treaty, but they couldn't agree on shit. Most of the chiefs left in disgust, with Red Cloud saying that he would never allow the whites to use the Bozeman Trail. Not even if there's a fire. Oh, and by the way, Bridger's road to the gold diggings was almost completely dismissed by the military at this point. For whatever damn reason, they were determined to use the Bozeman Trail and protect the prospectors using it at all costs despite it being the much more dangerous route. 
You just couldn't stop the damn fools from crossing Lakota and Cheyenne land. This was one of the things the Red Cloud was so angry about. You know, the tribes just did not want anybody passing through. Enter in Colonel Henry Carrington. He was tasked with heading into the heart of Lakota territory and raising a couple of new forts for the purpose of defending the travelers along the Bozeman. Bridger was called in to scout for the colonel, and they set off from Fort Laramie on June 17, 1866. 700 mostly untried and poorly equipped men, along with 226 mule teams, headed straight into the hornet's nest. And as would be a continuing trend, Jim's advice largely went ignored. Despite Bridger picking out a prime location for a new fort, the colonel instead chose a spot on the Little Piney, just east of the Bighorns in present-day Johnson County, Wyoming. An area that had ample grass and water, but no timber, at least not any conveniently close by, which posed its own unique set of problems. This new fort was quickly erected and dubbed Fort Phil Kearney, named after the popular Union general who was killed in action a few years before at the Battle of Chantilly. And by mid-July, the Lakota had already made their presence known, sneaking away with over 170 head of livestock from the new installation. Twenty-some-odd soldiers gave chase, which is exactly what the warriors wanted them to do. In the end, two soldiers and one teamster were dead, with five wounded. The following day, the Lakota stole an additional 34 mules from a wagon train on the Bighorn River. About a week later, Bridger was guiding a Thomas Burroughs from Fort Phil Kearney to Fort Reno when he came across quite a bit of Indian sign pointing towards Crazy Woman Creek. Investigating that night, Jim found what remained of a small detachment of soldiers who had been attacked earlier that day. Ten enlisted men, along with five officers, three women, and several children. Lieutenants Templeton and Daniels had ridden ahead to hunt for buffalo when they were attacked, with Daniels being killed. A wounded Templeton made it back to the wagons and circled them, and the fight was on. The chaplain for Fort Phil Kearney, a Reverend David White, was present, and as several people began praying, he grabbed a rifle, supposedly saying, quote, There is a time for praying and a time for fighting. Now stop praying. They put up a fight indeed until they were down to just a few rounds per man, at which point they had some hard decisions to make, namely who would be the designated hitter for the women and children. You've likely heard the old trope about saving that last bullet for yourself, right? The idea being that a quick death is better than what would await you if you're taken prisoner by the hostiles. The same consideration was given to women and children back in those days. And I get it, but man, not a job I would have liked to have had. Luckily that evening around dusk, before any drastic measures were taken, the beleaguered holdout spotted a solitary rider coming straight towards him. Old Jim Bridger himself. The scout entered into the encircled wagons among cheers and let the survivors know that help was on the way. Worth noting that Captain Burroughs had initially dismissed Jim's claims of Indian sign. Had Bridger not pushed on to investigate, God only knows what would have happened to those soldiers and civilians. In August, Carrington sent Bridger to scout out an area for an additional fort, this one to be on the mouth of the Bighorn, just a few miles from where Jim had rafted Bad Pass over four decades prior. Dubbed Fort C.F. Smith, this post was about 100 miles northwest of Fort Kearney in present-day Montana. And as the post was being constructed, Jim was also tasked with shortening the road from there to Virginia City, leading a small wagon train as he did so. Along the way, they came upon three dead miners, all riddled with arrows. Once in Virginia City, Bridger agreed to speak with the Montana Post and once again asserted that he and his buddies could end these hostilities in no time flat if just given the means. Yet another dig at the way the Army was handling business. 
Bridger also took the time to call on his old friends, the Crow, surprised to find out that they had already been paid a visit by Red Cloud and his people. Now more on Red Cloud and the Crow in a moment, but first, just real quick, are you an alcoholic? A raging drunk? How about someone who just enjoys a drink on occasion, or even a former drunk like myself who also just happens to enjoy history? Well, my friends over at 100 Proof History have a podcast I think you'll really enjoy. These guys do three things, and they do them well. History, whiskey, and jokes. Join the main host Greg and his sexy co-host Chris as they drink and make dumb jokes to try to ease the suffering that is human history. Link in the show notes, but one more time, that's 100 Proof History. This episode is also brought to you by... Welcome back. Not only had Red Cloud and his Sioux visited the Crow, but they were making the rounds to all the tribes, past enemies included, attempting to form an alliance and drive the Whites out for good. And some among the Crow were interested, either in fighting for the Sioux or the Whites, whichever side could assure them that they'd regain control of the Powder River country. Bridger talked some of the Crow leaders into coming with him to Fort C.F. Smith to speak with the commander, and he also rushed ahead to send news both to Carrington and the commander of Fort Laramie, Major James Van Vost, letting them know that they needed to act fast as the hostiles were assembling on the tongue and meant to do what Jim described as mischief. Van Vost especially doubted the old trapper, saying that he, quote, exaggerates about Indians. Jim then returned to Fort Smith, having shortened the road to Virginia City by 20 miles and securing the loyalty of the Crow, for the moment at least. By October, he was headed back to Fort Kearney at the request of Carrington. Once again, I don't want to go into too much detail here, uh, as I will be repeating myself in a few months. And if you're a longtime listener, you've already heard this story. Check out the Fetterman Fight episode on the Wild West Extravaganza Patreon if you're interested in more details. But earlier, I did mention the lack of timber around Fort Kearney. This meant that woodcutting details had to be sent out miles away. And whenever they left the safety of the fort, they were attacked, almost as a daily occurrence. The horizon sparkled from the glint of signal mirrors constantly. The enemy was waiting on them at all times as the soldiers' every move was watched and reported. Skip ahead to November 3, 1866. Captain William J. Fetterman arrives with an additional 63 troops and immediately begins boasting about whipping the entire damn Sioux nation. Others there at Kearney echo his sentiments, namely a Captain Frederick Brown and Lieutenant Francis Grummond. Fetterman receives permission to conduct an ambush shortly after arriving. He leaves a few mules picketed outside the fort as a trap, but the Lakota don't take the bait, instead opting to make off with a herd of cattle about a mile away. There's more dissent in the ranks of Fort Kearney. Accusations are levied. Tensions are high. By this point, the soldiers have withstood something like 50 attacks and lost around 20 men, including civilians. There were continued urgings for something to happen. Somebody needed to take the offensive to bring the fight to the hostiles. In early December, this was attempted. A wood detail came under attack about four miles away from the fort, and Captain Fetterman was sent to help with a company of cavalry. Even Colonel Carrington mounted up, looking to lead by example as he set off with a squad of mounted infantry. His plan was to circle his detachment around and cut off the Lakota retreat. During all this excitement, Lieutenants Grummond and Bingham, along with several soldiers, were separated from the main force and attacked. Grummond made it out alive, but Bingham did not. His body and that of a sergeant were found hours later, heavily mutilated. An additional four soldiers were wounded as the Lakota led them into an ambush. The tactic was simple. You lure your prey away with an easy target, perhaps one or two warriors who take off running. 
The soldiers would pursue, only to top a hill or round a corner, and oh boy, now you're surrounded. Seems easy enough to train against, but it just happened over and over again. Hell, it's a tactic still used by guerrilla fighters to this day. Of this debacle, Carrington admitted that the war with the natives required, quote, the utmost caution. As far as Bridger was concerned, he voiced his own opinion, saying that these soldiers didn't know anything about fighting Indians. And, let's face it, he was right. Following the end of the Civil War, a majority of your experienced troops mustered out. These young soldiers heading west were mostly raw recruits on their first deployment, and poorly trained at that. Some of the men, NCOs or the officers like Fetterman, were accomplished combat veterans. But fighting Johnny Reb down in Georgia was a whole lot different than facing the Great Plains warriors. Like fighting apples when you're used to punching oranges. Once again, word came that the Crow were becoming wishy-washy, so Bridger was sent back to talk with them. He arrived at Fort C.F. Smith in late November, and his stories were once more doubted by those in command. Just an aging mountain man living on his past accomplishments. Even the government back east was blind to the threat, or at least they claimed to be. In the State of the Union Address of 1866, President Andrew Johnson boasted, quote, Treaties have been concluded with the Indians who have unconditionally submitted to our authority and manifested an earnest desire for a renewal of friendly relations. End quote. I guess nobody told Crazy Horse or Red Cloud because they had an earnest desire all right, but it weren't for a renewal of friendly relations. Things finally came to a head on December 21st, 1866, when Bridger was still at Fort C.F. Smith. Like I said, I'm not going to go into great detail, but once more, the soldiers were lured outside of Fort Kearney to once again come to the aid of a wood detail. Captain Fetterman is often quoted as saying, give me 80 men and I will ride through the whole Sioux Nation. Whether or not he truly uttered these words is debatable, but on December 21st, he got exactly 80 men. Fetterman and his command were given explicit orders to not cross or pursue hostiles over Lodge Trail Ridge. They did so anyway and were summarily slaughtered, each and every damn one of them. This fight of the Hundred in Hand, also known as the Fetterman Massacre, was at that time one of the greatest defeats the U.S. military had ever suffered. Colonel Cook blamed Colonel Carrington, with Carrington then passing the buck onto the now-dead Fetterman. A lot of accusations were thrown about, lots of finger-pointing, and I will get to all of that in detail when I cover the Lakota Wars. Fact of the matter is, many mistakes were made by many different people. You know, if the Army had just steered the prospectors towards Bridger's Trail instead of insisting on the Bozeman, perhaps things would have been different. Likewise, if the military had built Fort Phil Kearney where Bridger recommended instead of miles away from their only source of timber. And what if the military commanders had paid closer attention to Jim's advice when it came to fighting the hostiles? You learn from those who know, right? Per one soldier, quote, James Bridger was with us all the summer of 1866, up until late in the fall. If Colonel Carrington and the officers had followed the advice of Bridger, I do not think there would have been nearly as many of our men killed. He told the officers not to follow the Indians and to send more men on escort duty. But they thought he was old and did not know anything about Indian warfare. End quote. Can somebody who was in the military please explain this to me? Like, What is the thought process here with officers? When there's a guy like Jim Bridger, clearly experienced, the man had been living out there uh, at this point for, what, 45 years? And he was still alive. He may have not known how to read or write. He may have looked like an old farmer, but the man was a damn survivor. 
Why would you pay no heed to his words? Like, why? What have you learned in a book that is better than what this man has already in his head? Yeah, it just frustrates me. By this point, Bridger's health was starting to decline, though. Though, I don't know, maybe that had something to do with it. That fall he took from the horse a while back was catching up with him, as was old age. And he wasn't able to get around as quickly as he once could. Also, his eyesight began failing him. He was joined at Fort C.F. Smith by Mitch Boyer, a young mixed-blood man, his father a French fur trapper, and his mother a Santee Sioux. And Mitch was sort of a protege of Jim's, soaking up all that knowledge and experience. He's another guy I'd like to cover on a future episode. In June, Bridger returned to Fort Kearney, blazing yet another trail, as he did so, known as Bridger's Cutoff, a route that found its way on military maps that very summer. He was also joined by his friends the Crow, and by the end of the month, there were more than 1,800 of them camped around the fort. Still, though, not everybody welcomed Bridger. The new commander of the Mountain District, Colonel John Smith, said that the old scout was not needed, and furthermore, he paid no heed to rumors about attacks. A silly comment, considering that the Lakota then proceeded to conduct several raids on and around the fort, culminating in the famous wagon box fight on August 2nd of 1867. Jim Bridger, still not feeling his usual pert self, took a temporary discharge in September to quote-unquote recuperate from what was described as an enfeebled condition. But he returned to duty in the spring of 1868 and guided three companies in building a road from the new Fort Fetterman to Medicine Bow. Red Cloud's war was winding down, but it was a total loss for the Army. The first war ever lost by the U.S. military. The army would end up abandoning the Bozeman Trail completely along with the forts that they had built, including Kearney. From May to July of 1868, Bridger assisted in these efforts, guiding General Henry Morrow along with over 200 wagons, just doing what he had always done, keeping an eye out for ambushes, choosing safe spots to camp, steering men and animals, clear poisonous water, finding safe river crossings, you name it, etc., etc. Per Finn Burnett, quote, he seemed to never forget a trail that he had ever traveled, or the distance between streams or watering places, whether good water or bad, and also whether or not there was wood and if there was good feed for the stock. So we always knew what sort of camp the one ahead would be and what kind of country we would travel over in order to reach it. End quote. On July 21st, 1868, at 64 years of age, Jim Bridger was finally discharged from military service for the final time. Still wasn't ready to retire, though. Oh, no. In February of 69, Bridger offered up the idea of him becoming the new Indian agent to the Crow. His nomination was formally approved by General Sherman, but ultimately the job went to another, younger man. Meanwhile, Jim's eyesight was progressively worsening. He was far from destitute, however. Uh, Bridger had barely even touched the money that he received from the Army, and over the years, he had acquired a few properties around Westport and New Santa Fe, which he now began selling for a profit. Except for one. In April of 1872, he deeded his 287-acre farm to his daughter Virginia, charging her a whopping $1, and the, quote, love and affection I bear towards her as my daughter, end quote. Now nearly blind, Bridger stayed close to home and tended to his prized apple orchard, often sending bushels of apples to his neighbors. His claims about Yellowstone were also vindicated. The area was finally, officially explored, the geysers and other wanders quote-unquote discovered, and even the Kansas City Journal printed an official apology to Jim Bridger. Editor Robert Van Horn wrote that he quote, 
heard from Bridger's own account of those wanders and had written it out for publication but had suppressed it because some of his friends laughed at it as utterly incredible. End quote. Jim's son Felix died in 1876, just 25 days after Custer and his men, including Bridger's protege Mitch Boyer, were wiped out up there on the greasy grass. James was 72 years old when he buried Felix. He had already outlived three wives and four children, and many, many of his friends. Of the remaining three kids, you had Virginia, Mary Elizabeth, and his youngest, William. By the late 1870s, Bridger could only recognize people by the sounds of their voices, but he still got around with a heavy walking cane and even went riding his favorite horse on occasion. He'd tell Virginia to go saddle old Ruff for me. I feel like riding the farm, and he would letting Ruff pick his way with his dogs trailing behind. If Jim ever got turned around, something that never happened when he was younger, he would just sit there on the horse waiting while the dogs ran back home barking to fetch help. Bridger still loved to tell stories. He would walk to town often, filling his way with his cane, and one of the locals claimed that Jim could still out-talk seven men. And even the children would come and sit on the porch and listen to his yarns. I shall always remember Bridger's kindly blue-gray eyes, said a woman who was around 10 or 12 when she knew the old trapper. Quote, I would often go see Mr. Bridger. He was always very hospitable and liked to have the children of the neighborhood come to see him. His son Bill played the violin, and the whole neighborhood used to come to dance at the Bridger home. I often saw him riding on horseback or walking over his land, filling his way along with his stick, accompanied by two or three of his foxhounds. If they startled a rabbit, the old man would get greatly excited and ahoo the hounds onto the chase. End quote. Despite his age and eyesight, Jim was anxious as ever to live out west, declaring that he would not stay east for another day if he could only have use of his eyes. Often while sitting on the porch, Bridger would stare towards the west and say, quote, I wish I was back among the mountains again. You can see so much further in that country. On July 17, 1881, the great Jim Bridger passed on to the other side at 77 years of age. A life, I think, that was well lived. One that saw a tremendous, almost unbelievable amount of change. When Jim was a young man first going up the Missouri River, the entire western half of what's now the United States was a wilderness. There were no stores, no post offices, no doctors, no lawyers or teachers or police officers. When Bridger was a child, there were founding fathers and veterans of the American Revolution still alive. Thomas Jefferson wouldn't die until Jim was in his 20s. When Bridger did head west, the Great Plains teemed with millions upon millions of shaggy bison, and by the time he died, these animals were all but extinct. Likewise with the indigenous, both friends and enemies. The Blackfeet are a perfect example. They were the cocks of the walk, the baddest of the bad. A formidable foe that put many of Jim's pals under. Yet, by the time Bridger departed the mountains, they were but a nub of what they once were. Decimated by disease and plagues, an economy and government they did not understand. Even the Lakota were done, despite their last hoorah from the mid-1860s to the late-1870s. By the time of Bridger's passing, Crazy Horse was gone. Red Cloud was on the reservation, and even Sitting Bull would finally surrender, just two days after Jim's death. Bridger passed through modern-day Denver before there was so much as a law cut or a nail driven. Likewise with Casper and Jackson and Billings and Bozeman. From Bismarck to Salt Lake City, Jim Bridger saw it all when it was still wild and free and untamed. Yet at his passing, all of these lands were crisscrossed by railroad tracks, 
fencing and barbed wire. It had all been parceled out, claimed, dug up, and built upon. Church bells now rang in lieu of beaver tails slapping the water and prisons and jails sprung up where the only law once was what a man could enforce with his own fist and rifle and blade. A man who could neither read nor write, who once helped power a keelboat up the Missouri River with pure muscle and guts, saw the coming of the steamboat, the telegraph, and even the damn telephone. Hell, Jim Bridger even outlived Billy the Kid by a total of three days. His son, William would pass away from consumption six years later, in 1887, and daughter Mary Elizabeth died in 1922 from heart trouble. Virginia lived the longest, not dying until 1933. Matter of fact, she lived long enough to go see the movie The Covered Wagon in theater, where her father was portrayed by actor Tully Marshall. Virginia was not happy with it, though, as the movie Jim Bridger was a heavy drinker who lived with two Indian women at the same time. Paul was never like that. Virginia scoffed, before filing a million-dollar lawsuit against the production company, a suit that was ultimately overturned due to Jim already being long dead. Oh, and by the way, the Bridger estate was finally paid for Fort Bridger, a whopping $6,000. And that's about all I've got on the great Jim Bridger. What a life. Hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you learned a little something. I know I did. Thank you so much for listening. I know I say this all the time, but it means the world to me. Really does. Huge thank you to those of you supporting the Wild West extravaganza via Patreon and Buy Me a Coffee. And thanks to everybody for just spreading the word. Next up, we will be taking a look at a relatively unknown character from the Old West. A young man, uh, hang on a second, let me make sure I'm pronouncing this name correctly. A young man named William Bonney? I don't know, uh, I've barely heard of him. Maybe you have, but that's what's coming up next. After this episode you're listening to right now, there will be one or maybe two weeks of downtime, but then we coming back, baby, with a full-on Billy the Kid series. I don't know about you, but I am pee my pants excited. Till then, stay safe, check out the podcast to be a rebel and 100 Proof History, and definitely check out to see what my friend Michael over at Texas History Lessons is up to. The Lord's work, that's what he's doing. Thanks again, everybody. Till next time, adios. Not even if there's a fire.